tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Here we are again. Hopefully, all the gizmos will work. You never know. Oh, and I'm I'm I, I've got a lot of letters I got to catch up on, so I'm not going to take phone calls today. I'm going to do a letter show. I'm going I'm going to get some of these letters done because, well, <laughs> it, I'm less confused when I open the uh, uh, the the um, who's and what's it's the computer, which you know, as you know computers hate me. With that in mind, let us pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit that right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. This is going to take some work. The reading today, the first reading, is from the Book of Wisdom, the seventh chapter, the 22nd verse and following, and it is as obscure as any reading in the Bible, as far as I am concerned. (sighs) We read that when wisdom is a spirit, intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, Agile, clear, unstained, certain, not baneful. Not baneful? When is the last time you used the word baneful? My, but that was baneful of you. Oh, once again, I just like to say that we need to translate the Bible into English. I mean, the voice in my head just said, baneful sounds like it comes from a Jane Austen novel, maybe. Uh, loving the good, keen, unhampered, beneficent, kindly, firm, secure, tranquil, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-pervading, all spirits, though they be intelligent, pure, and very subtle. For wisdom is mobile beyond all motion, and she penetrates and pervades all things by reason of her purity, she is an aura of the might of God, a pure effusion of the glory of the Almighty. I suppose you have lots of effusions, don't you? Though naught that is sullied enters into her, for she is the refulgence of eternal light. Refulgence. Use that one on the kids. What is this about? I think you can only... Uh, for me, you can only parse this out... Uh, through the word Almighty. Let's go back to the beginning of this whole schmear. Um, first of all, I have heard people look at the Book of Wisdom and different passages, um, and uh, they want to make wisdom. I've heard people say that, well, wisdom, Jesus' wisdom uh, before 
the incarnation and uh, uh, that, that that Jesus was a woman before the incarnation. What? That, what? This is not Sophia. Well, Sophia is a feminine word. Yeah, that's the word for wisdom in Greek, Sophia. But wisdom is a created thing. If we can lay hold of it, it's created. But get that out of your head. Well, wisdom is a spirit. Wisdom is a being. Well, let me tell you a story. The word, the word spirit, pneuma in Greek, is essentially a translation of the, the Hebrew word neshoma, which means a breath. You got lots of words for the soul in, in Hebrew. You got ruach, which is a wind. That's the closest one to pneuma. Then you've got nefesh, which is, uh, probably in a, I suspect an Egyptian concept, but it's, it, it's related to the word breathe. Neshoma is related to that word. I will never forget, and I'm sure I've shared this story with you, the first time I was invited to Sabbath dinner at Rabbi Lefkowitz. He wasn't sure that I was the real thing. And he was very wary of me as being a wise man, who one should be. Well, I'm sitting at the far end of the table. It's a Friday in Lent. Out comes the gefilte fish. If you've ever had gefilte fish, it's sort of aquatic spam. It is definitely an acquired taste. It's edible if you put lots of beet horseradish on it. At least that's my opinion of gefilte fish. No offense to anyone who loves gefilte fish. It is all chopped fish. The reason is it is considered work to take bones out of fish on Sabbath. You can't pull a bone out of a fish, so you have to have a fish that is guaranteed no bones. <sighs> gefilte fish. Well, out comes the gefilte fish, and I eat the gefilte fish. Out comes the noodle kugela, which is the second course, which is sort of sweet casserole of noodles and that sort of thing. Um, no cheese, but it's, uh, it's a, I love a good noodle kugela. Well, and out comes the turkey. I look at the rabbits and the rabbi's wife, a force of nature, a Jewish mother. And I say, I can't eat that. And she says, what? I say, it's Friday in Lent. The rabbi's down at the far end of the table looking at who's going to win. <laughs> well, I say, I can't eat it. It's Friday in Lent. She says, but it's Shabbos. For you, it's Shabbos. For me, it's Friday in Lent. And she says, surely God would send you an extra spirit, an ashoma, and you could eat the turkey. An ashoma is an extra spirit that God sends you. It isn't necessarily a sentient being, but an extra spirit. And the spirit, the idea was, would do the, the penitential fasting for me while I ate the turkey. And I looked at her and I said, I don't think God is going to send a Gentile a neshoma so he can eat turkey on a Friday in Lent. And she shrugged and brought back the noodle kugula. Rabbi Lefkowitz smiled and he realized we were going to be friends because I had stuck to my guns. And so it was. Oh, boy, I'll never forget that. <laughs> but this explained to me the lighting of candles that... Uh, um, I remember a very dear friend, <clears throat> Jim, uh, he was the volunteer soup kitchen director and I think still is it. And many years later, I think he still holds the title in, in, in uh, the soup kitchen that I, I was part of. And he was in Assisi and he was on his way back to the faith. He had, he had, um, spent a time away from the Lord and he was on his way back to the faith and he was praying at the tomb of St. Francis and he looked at his watch and realized he had to go and he so wanted to stay and he realized that he could light a candle 
and that that candle would represent him in prayer. That's exactly why Jews light candle on Shabbos, on Sabbath. They have they light the candles before Sabbath starts. There's a candle lighting ceremony at a specific time. They believe the candle light represents a neshama that God has sent to help in the joy of celebrating Sabbath. In moments of great joy and in great sorrow, God sends extra souls. Now, these are not uh, beings as we would think of them. Maybe they can be compared to angelic beings, but I don't know. But that's what wisdom... Wisdom is a spirit. You know, Harkma is a neshama. Wisdom is a spirit. Sophia is a pneuma. Intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle... There's one word in here, I forget which word is translated. They just look at the translations of these. There's one word, tropos, which means clear. And another word, leptos. I couldn't figure out what the word leptos meant. It really comes to the word for left behind. It, it implies the husk of a, when you would husk, say, uh, a, a, an ear of corn, though they didn't have corn, uh, a grain of wheat, that, that, that husk, uh, what was inside, that was a leptos, a thing left behind. In other words, a transparent veil. What this text is saying is wisdom has about it a simplicity. It is mobile beyond motion. It has no moving parts. It is a gift from God. <laughs> Humorously, the best explanation I can think of uh, for uh, uh, wisdom is uh, knowledge is the awareness that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is the good sense not to put it in a fruit salad. And we read very similarly in uh, the uh, letter of St. James, there is a wisdom from above. Let me pull that up. Um, there's a similar sort of catalog, much shorter. Uh, um, in the letter of James, which you can hear me clicking away, I should have looked this up earlier, but I'll just click, and uh, James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, partial, and, and uh, sincere. Uh, he talks about wisdom from below. I mean, wisdom in this world. Uh, that that uh, he, that's not what he's talking about. He talks about um, um, selfish ambition in your hearts. Uh, such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly and spiritual, demonic. Where selfish uh, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom which is from above is first of all pure, and peace-loving, gentle, accommodating, full of mercy good fruit, impartial and sincere. I can't imagine that James was not thinking about this passage from the Book of Wisdom uh, um, in in discussing or in, in, in illuminating the qualities of wisdom uh, that he wanted to emphasize. There is a goodness and a simplicity with the wisdom which is from above. She is the aura of the might of God, a pure effusion. In other words, she just comes from... Um, she just comes spontaneously from the nature of the Almighty. Now, why do I think that Almighty is the pivotal word here? There is a simplicity in wisdom. You know, St. Thomas Aquinas, if you read him, he's not that complicated, really. I mean, he's profound, but in a sense, he is the apostle of, of, of good sense. 
he is, he is, uh, I think people make more of St. Thomas than St. Thomas would. But St. Thomas, what he's saying makes sense. There's wisdom in it. Uh, I can, I can create all of these uh, permutations of contradiction and, and linguistic problems and all these, you know, I studied so much philosophy and I know almost nothing. And I, I was cheated because I didn't study much St. Thomas. But he sets up an argument and says, A, B, C, D. This makes sense. There's a simplicity about it. And there's a simplicity about wisdom. You know, I, I, I can say things like, well, I'm not sure about this. We'll have to trust God. That's why the Almighty, the word in Greek for Almighty here is the ruler of all things. That, that if I believe there is a God who has made all things, even those things that don't seem to make sense in the end will make sense, that, that I don't have to have all the moving parts in a complex philosophy uh, that I have to defend, uh, I can say, well, I'm going to trust God on this. And God will reveal his purposes. Wisdom has a simplicity about it. And and that's, I think, what this text is saying, because, boy, it's complicated. You know, <laughs> this an old story about the New England farmer. Somebody drives past, and he's lost, and he says, Farmer, where does this road go? And the old farmer says, In all my years here, it hasn't gone anywhere. And the fellow says, uh, well, that's not much of an answer, farmer. You seem stupid. He says, well, I'm not the one who's lost. <laughs> you know, that, that I have met people like that who are, without show, are really quite wise. And I've found that the wise man generally lives a simple life because he trusts God. Now, I'm working on it all in my old age, but it is it is not that easy to trust God. Jesus once said, when he was asked, what is the work of God? He said, the work of God is to believe in the one whom God has sent. If you look at the original meaning of the word believe, of course, it means trust. The work of God is to trust the one whom God has sent. And trusting God really is a lot of work. You know, I've given my burden to the Lord and taken it back a thousand times. You know, that I worry about everything I possibly can. That's because I don't believe that God is almighty. I don't believe that God is all-powerful. I believe that the circumstances of my life are somehow bigger than God. And I'll end with this idea. Our Blessed Mother said in the Magnificat, when she was in a very difficult position, she was pregnant and unmarried, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The word magnified means to make big. In your mind and in your heart, you have a magnifying glass. Which is bigger, the problem or the Lord? If you magnify the problem, the Lord becomes small. But if you magnify the Lord, then you realize the problem is smaller. Every time you thank God for something he got you through, where grace brought you safely through, you're magnifying the Lord. So I urge you, magnify the Lord. That's real wisdom. Well, all right. Uh, let's go to a well. Let's let's go to mass hysteria. Let's let's go to mass hysteria. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Ah, a great song. I most of the organists I 
I know, call it on Beagle's Wings, because it's so... It's a lovely song, but it you can't have a valid funeral without it. You gotta play on Eagle's Wings, uh, and you gotta play Be Not Afraid, and, uh, <laughs> I got a letter, not too, uh, and Shepherd Me, Oh God, that's required too. The voice in my head just reminded me. Well, I got a note from someone, I, did I, did I send it to myself, about how, well, really, you said a while ago that, that, that these songs are 60 years old. Well, An Eagle's Wings was written in 1977. <laughs> so I guess that makes it new. These songs are only 60 years old. They're not 60 years old. They're only 44 and 46 years old. Uh, uh, Be Not Afraid and Beagle's Eagle's Wings. Do you realize that the children that we are trying to uh, raise in the faith are... I read somewhere that people leave the church at the age of 13. That's when they decide that there's no God. I think they don't want a God to be there because they want to do what they want to do. But one of their big objections is, well, science has taught us that there is no God. No, your teachers are teaching you that there's no God. I think we have to uh, uh, really instruct them in, in God's love uh, when they're little and teach them to pray and introduce them when they are 10, 11, 12 to great Christian scientists. If they know that it was a Monsignor, a Catholic priest, who came up with the Big Bang Theory, or Copernicus was a Catholic clergyman who, uh, the heliocentric universe, that sort of thing. So apologetics should be aimed at kids because kids are natural philosophers. And, uh, well, I don't know enough to do that. Well, learn it. You're a, be a scholar. Learn stuff. Uh, find, uh, you do a web search for famous scientists who believed in God. Teach them about Eucharistic miracles. But above all, teach them to pray. If you pray with them, not tell, go say your prayers, but you pray with them, and you read them the scriptures, and you... You start out you start out a car trip with a prayer and maybe say a rosary on the way. They're going to know God. And when they know God, they will know God is the truth. Uh, so, um, yeah, don't try to, to, to sneak kids into the faith through contemporary music because that music that we're playing in church, it ain't contemporary at all. It's 46 years old. Might, be, might as well be an infinity to a 13-year-old kid. Okay, well, let's take a break. We'll come back with letters. I'm going to do a letter show today because I have so many letters uh, that I have to catch up on. So I'm going to do a, a, a few letter shows. You'll forgive me for that, I hope. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Hi, we're back. Well, at least I'm back. I hope you're back. That first reading is so confusing, but I, I hope I elucidated it, which is a fancy word meaning throw some light on it. You know, someday we got to translate the Bible into English. All right, moving along. Uh, let's do the word of the day. This word of the day is from Vanessa. Uh, it's it's uh, 
It's a letter uh, that I got, but I wanted to use it as a word of the day because, well, it's a pretty simple word. Uh, a caller was criticized about wearing a crucifix. Galatians 6.14, St. Paul boasts in Christ crucified. Why shouldn't we? Well, I, I've, I've shared with you the idea that, you know, why have the body still on the cross? Jesus rose from the dead. And I point out that Jesus carried the cross in his resurrection. Uh, he had the marks of the nails in his hands and feet and the wound in his side. Didn't have the crown of thorns in his resurrection. Doesn't, you don't hear about the, the scourge marks, but those wounds he received on the cross, those he carried with him. And the cross, when he talks about glory in the Gospel of John, invariably he seems to be talking about the cross. Now is the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified, unless the grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies. Then he says just about the same thing when Judas walks out to set things in, uh, set the machinery into motion that would end in his crucifixion. He says, now is the hour come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, his glory was the cross, not just the resurrection, because on the cross he showed who he was, the obedient son of the Father, and he defeated the devil. So, Galatians 6.14 says that St. Paul, Paul boasts in Christ crucified. Why shouldn't we? So what does this have to do with the word of the day? What is the difference between a cross and a crucifix? A cross is made of two boards. A crucifix means something is nailed to the cross. That's what a crucifix, as in fixed on the cross. We get that word fixed, believe it or not, from Latin. And he is fixed on the cross. And it, it implies a permanence that to, to fix your gaze on something or to, uh, to fix that plaque firmly in place, it implies permanence. And the cross, the crucifix, is about the permanence of Christ's love for us that was demonstrated on the cross and his obedience to the Father. So, difference between a crucifix and a cross? The crucifix is Christ crucified. The cross is just two boards. That's my theory. All right, let us go to letters. This is, this is from Gerard in Fort Myers. My mind sometimes wanders when I pray. Do they count? Yes. Next question. No, you know, prayer is the lifting of the heart and mind to God. And, you know, we speak in a lot of different ways. Just to go into a church is a speaking. You know, we think of speaking as something with our mouth and our mind and our ears, you know, hearing, speaking. But we speak with our gestures, with our hands. And to genuflect is a lifting of the heart to God. To, to sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament is a lifting of the heart to God. I remember a beautiful story uh, told by Saint, I think it was told of Saint Jean Vianney, the curé, the, the, the parish priest of the town of R in France. Um, uh, there was an old man who would come into church every day and sit for hours in front of a big crucifix. And one day, St. John Vianney came in and he asked the man, you know, you sit there and look at that crucifix for hours. What are you doing? He says, well, I look at him. He looks at me. <laughs> and that's prayer. Uh, you know, we think sometimes that, that we have to levitate and, and compose florid poems unto the Lord. No, just keeping God company sometimes. That's prayer, to lift the heart and mind to God. Uh, when I'm distracted, my mind is not lifted to God. But when I'm sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, uh, my heart 
is lifted to God. So I'm not encouraging distraction. Try to focus on prayer. When you're distracted, just, oh, uh, sorry, Lord, I I went somewhere. But um, that idea of I look at him, he looks at me. Um, another story, since since I'm telling stories, there's, uh, I love this story. I have doubtless told it to you before. But um, there's a little kid who uh, goes to his mom and says, if God exists, why can't we see him? And she says, I'm very busy right now. Go ask your father. And, of course, Dad's sitting in front of the television with a channel changer trying to catch every game on television, as we men will do. Um, well, he says, Dad, if God is so real, why can't we see him? He says, I'm busy now. Go ask your mom. So the kids have been blown off by Mom and Dad. And that weekend, he's going with Grandpa. He's going on a fishing trip. And it's one of these beautiful autumn days. And, uh, you know, the, the lake is as still as glass. And they're in the boat, and, you know, the sun is coming up, and the trees are golden and beautiful colored. And the little kid says to his grandfather, Grandpa, if God is real, why can't we see him? And the old man looks away, and the kid thinks, great, Grandpa's going to blow me off too. He looks away. And then he looks back at the kid and he says, Junior, these days God is pretty much all that I can see. When we think of prayer, prayer isn't the recitation of words all the time. Sometimes it is. That's why I love the rosary. It's, 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 I call it Catholic praying in tongues when you have to pray and don't know what to pray. Uh, unutterable groaning, St. Paul calls prayer. But I look at him, he looks at me. That's prayer, lifting of the heart to God. And uh, sometimes we're so mental that we think that we have to have this 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 thing going on in our, in our head. When you love someone, sometimes it's good enough just to sit there with them. So, uh, Gerard, no, even when you get distracted, your prayers count. <laughs> I love that. Do my prayers count? They sure do. So pray for me. All right, let's go to this one. This is from uh, uh, Paula. <laughs> uh, yeah, Paula, I uh, was listening on the internet about the three days of darkness. I've been hearing a lot about the three days of darkness recently and people bringing blessed candles home to be prepared for it. Do you know if there's any credibility to this supposed private revelation? Thanks for setting, shedding some light on this topic. Pun intended. This is Paula from Memphis. Paula, I have no idea if there are going to be three days of darkness. I remember in 2000, the year 2000, uh, the end of 1999, all sorts of Spanish-speaking pe people were coming to me at St. Thomas, where I was pastor at the time, with candles to bless. And I, I thought there was a revival going on. And I mean, this was just people coming to church I'd never seen with candles. And apparently on Spanish uh, social media at that time, a rumor had gone out that that the three days of darkness would coincide with the changing of the millennium. And, you know, I, if you remember Y2K, uh, uh, all the computers were going to uh, crash and all the planes were going to fall out of the sky. 
um, etc. Well, they didn't. The only computer that had problems was my old computer that I loved so much had a calendar on it. And some computer geek said, I can, I can fix it. And he set the calendar ahead. So two years later, my computer died. So I think I was the only victim of Y2K. However, I digress as I always do. Well, the, 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 the 2020, there were going to be the three days of darkness. That was 22 years ago. And I remember hearing it about 10 years before that. So, I don't know if there's going to be a day, day, three days of darkness, but I, I'm not holding my breath uh, because, well, you got to trust God. God's not going to send anything that's going to be bad um, uh, to those who love him. And so you trust God, you love God, and if all of a sudden there are three days of darkness, just resolve to catch up on the sleep that you probably need so badly. Um, I have no idea. Oh, but some great mystics have thought there's going to be three days of darkness. Yeah. Great mystics and well, great mystics have been wrong. Let's see here. Um, this is a tough one. It comes from Alex, and it's about Sirach, the wisdom of Sirach, forty-two verse fourteen. As you know, in the book of Sirach, there are countless verses singing praises to good wives. I think my prior reading of the book was the same translation as used by the USCCB. However, I recently stumbled upon a different. Uh, translation and was greatly confused by Sirach 42:14 many translations say essentially a man's wickedness is better than a woman's goodness women bring shame and disgrace oh dear we're going to jump on the third rail here aren't we uh, so when confused like this, I often turn to the original text to see if there may be a key to understanding in the original language. I spent time, for instance, thinking about how the name of God revealed to Moses and that sort of thing. In any event, I discovered that the online translation resources seem to be made for Protestant readers and either do not contain Sirach and do not include the original Greek and Hebrew text. And you have a point. Uh, most of the things that are easily found and available are... Uh, 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 don't include the what we call these days the deuterocanonical books. However, you have asked for the right person here. I hope um, the the um, uh, the text is is. I, let me find the text here. I looked it up, and that translation, a man's. It really says the wicked deeds of a man are better than the goodness a woman's. Goodness, let me let me find the exact the exact thing here. Again, it's one of these things you have to read in its context. Um, talks about of exact balance and weights, getting much a little merchants indifferent, uh, uh, selling. Uh, there's all sorts of things to to think about here. Um, then he launches into. Deliver all things in number and weight, and put all in writing that thou givest out or receivest, and be not ashamed to inform the unwise and foolish and the extreme aged that contend with those that are young. Thus shall you be truly learned and approved of all men living. A daughter is care, wakeful care to the father. What he's saying is, don't cheat people. He's starting there. you got to have honest weights, all that sort of thing. Why does he then launch into uh, uh, women? Now, don't anybody get upset. I'm just talking history here. Men were in charge of women. That's not the way we do it. In fact, is it kind of the opposite. But marriage in the ancient world was an arranged thing. And now, please, don't shoot the messenger. But women were considered 
in most societies as a kind of property, not among the Hebrews, not among Israel. They weren't property. They, man and, they were made in the image of God, male and female, he made them. Now, that said, a father was still uh, in, responsible for the quality of, of his daughter. He was swearing to her suitor that she was a certain type of person. A daughter is a wakeful care to a father. Anybody who is the parent of children know they're all wakeful cares to their parents. And, uh, you know, a girl, in our times, uh, we don't think this way. But a girl, if she was being uh, promiscuous, it would be pretty clear pretty soon. Virginity was very important because of property rights. You wanted to pass the family name, the family possessions on to the next generation. Put it in that context. I mean, it's not the way we think. In fact, it's rather scandalous, uh, rather repulsive to us to think that way. But verse 9 of this chapter, A daughter is a wakeful care to a father, and care for her taketh away sleep. When she's young, lest she pass away the flower of her age, and being married, lest she should be hated. So you want her husband to love her. Then verse 10, and we are in, uh, which chapter are we in? We're in chapter 42 of the Wisdom of Sirach. Verse 10, in her virginity, lest she should be defiled and gotten with child in her father's house, and having a husband, lest she should misbehave herself. When she is married, lest she should be barren. Uh, that they feared that promiscuity would cause barrenness. And actually, with certain STDs, that's, that's possible. Keep a sure watch over a shameless daughter. Now he's talking about a specific kind of daughter, lest she make you a laughing stock and a byword in the city. Behold, not everybody's beauty. In other words, don't, don't concentrate on external beauty and do not sit in the midst of women. For from garments comes a moth and from women wickedness. Better is the churlishness of a man. They, this translation uses churlish man, churlishness. But the word is poneria, which means the, the bad deeds of a man than, uh, than uh, a woman with good manners. <laughs> and a woman who is acting shamefully uh, um, brings reproach. I will now remember the works of the Lord. Well, what's that about? Now... That sounds awful, the bad deeds of a man. What really is going on here, I believe, and maybe this is just me reading into it, just my opinion. Women are so much more powerful than men. A man cannot bear a child. Uh, what does that have to do with this? Uh, I think it's a very important thing that, that women are, are really stronger than men. And thus... When a woman is is bad, it's worse than a man's evil. A man's evil, uh, not in the eyes of God, that's not what I'm saying, but the effect that it can have on a family. Um, I have seen repeatedly, when a home ends with the death of a mother or a divorce, a man has a really hard time making a home. Uh, he can make a house, but a home... Woman is the family. And that's what this guy's saying, that, that, that 
vigilance over the moral life of a woman is actually more significant. Women have a, a, a power that, that I think modern feminism doesn't admit. You know, that, that I always say there's never been a feminist movement. There's been a masculinist movement, that the things that men do are, are important and good. Politicians and lawyers and engineers and, you know, doctors, these are, they're not, there is no act more important to human society than the godly raising of children. And to, to diminish that great work is anti-feminist. That is the one thing a woman can do that a man can't do. She can carry a child. Both can conceive the child. But uh, to carry a child, this is uniquely the work of a woman. And thus, women are more powerful than men. That's that's. I really believe if you read it in that context, it makes more sense considering the historical context in which this was written. It is not saying that women are evil. But that when women are evil, it is a great evil. When men are evil, what else do we expect? But when women are evil, it is a great evil. That's how I read this. Now, I hope I haven't offended anybody, uh, but, you know, the attitude that we have in our times will pass away. And society will look different in 100, 200, 300 years unless the Lord comes soon. But this, I think, is an immortal truth that the moral burden that a woman carries in her ability to give life is an amazing and powerful thing. And to say that men are more powerful than women is not to recognize the truth. That the moral good a woman can do is great, and so is the moral evil. That's how I read this. Let's go to a break. I've talked long. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. I got a letter from... Let's see here if I can say who I got the letter from. You know, I got to look and make sure he doesn't want to be anonymous. This is from Stephen. <laughs> oh, dear. I already said it was a he, but it's Stephen from Eau Claire. He's got a couple of questions here, but one, he has a son who is claiming to be agnostic. He And he, he, it's because of the Genesis story. He, he struggles with seeing so much evil in the world. I told him about how God created human beings with a free will, allowing us to choose to love him. Uh, but he said, why did God set us up to fail? Putting the tree with the forbidden fruit in the middle of the garden, assuming God is real and did this, even figuratively, he had to know what the consequences would be. His reasons from this is that if God can make us holy to live with him forever, why didn't he just do that in the first place? You know, this is a tough, tough question because we are so used to the idea since God is all-powerful, he can do anything for us and he should do what we want. That's not what his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness is about. That his his all-powerfulness is, his all-powerfulness is about creating the ability that we have to enter into relationship. That's the goal to which he's applied his omnipotence. Uh, it isn't about making me happy. It's about making me divine. I would just be content to just be happy, but that's not what God's doing. 
that's what I want him to do. Why doesn't he do what I want him to do? Because he's God. If we think of God as all-powerful, which he is, we think, therefore, he can't. his will couldn't be resisted. That would be true were I all-powerful. But the most amazing thing about the mystery of God is that God is humble. If what we believe, that Jesus of Nazareth is the visible image of the invisible God, that's astonishing. Our religion says, you want to know what God is? There's no doubt that God exists. There's no doubt. God exists by definition. God is that greater than which nothing exists. In other words, if the universe is somehow self-creating, then the universe is God. Uh, 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 a mindless, unconscious jumble of of rocks and and cosmic gases. I don't know anybody who can really believe that. When you look at the order of the universe, there certainly seems to be some intelligence in it. Uh, the, 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 what did Einstein say about, about creation? The amazing thing about God, or the, rather, the amazing thing about the universe is that it can be understood. Think about that. We exist as a species able to understand, at least in part, the nature of the universe. It's something that can be studied. The order and the reason of the universe is amazing. Well, the question isn't whether there is a God. The question is, what is the nature of God? And what Christianity says, if you want to get to know about God, if you want to get to know what God is like, Look at a Jewish carpenter who was born about 2,000 years ago in a barn. And he worked as in construction. He wasn't a theologian or a prince or anything like that or a rich man. He was, he was a day laborer. He worked in construction. And he died under arrest uh, on a cross. He died tortured to death by, a, by an oppressive uh, occupying government. That's, that's God. That's our religion. If I were to tell you, you know, I think that the corner mechanic uh, down 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 the street is is divine. You know, the one with the really grubby fingernails. I think he's God. You'd say you're crazy. You need to see somebody. But that's what our religion says. I love the Shroud of Turin and believe it. It is what it seems to be. Have that kid study the Shroud of Turin and then come up with answers for that. But I, I really think the Shroud of Turin is what it claims to be. But the, one of the interesting things about the Shroud of Turin is one shoulder is so much larger than the other shoulder as if to be deformed. That's because there were no lumber yards. Jesus would have to go into a forest and chop down a tree if he wanted some wood. He worked, did manual labor from his childhood on with his right hand. Apparently he was right-handed. God was a day laborer. That's what God is like. Oh no, God is this cosmic force that can do anything I want and make me rich and give me health and give me all that I want. If you want to know, you know, if you want to know what God is like, walk into a Catholic church and look at the crucifix. That's, that's really something when you think about it. We have a humble God. Well, why does God, why didn't he just make everything right and nice like a sitcom? Well, do you realize that God is so humble that he allowed human beings to tie him down to the wood and to nail nails into his hands and feet? 
you know, I, I'm sure I've shared with you when I was uh, saying mass and the fruit flies are dive bombing the chalice. And I said to the Lord, I know that I believe this is your body and blood, but couldn't you convince the flies of this great miracle for a minute? And that little voice that sometimes speaks in our heart and mind said, with my hands nailed to the wood of the cross, I was a feast for the flies. I couldn't go on with mass. It took me 15 minutes to compose myself. To think that the hand we Christians believe is set the stars to spinning couldn't lift itself to swipe the flies from his face. That's what God is like. And you're mad because, well, people aren't totally happy. What we believe is that God left his throne and joined us in our suffering. Well, he could have just ended our suffering. Yeah, but then we would not have been able to become sons and daughters of God. We wouldn't be able to love. In this sad world, suffering is the price of love. And if that kid of yours uh, uh, ever has kids of his own, he'll understand that. that. That if you don't care about someone when they're sick, when they're sad, when they're, when they're miserable, meh, no skin off my back. But when you love them, uh, to quote the movie, when you love them, they break your heart. And... That's why Jesus went to the cross. And that's why he allows suffering in the world. Oh, couldn't he have done it with less than the Holocaust? I have a feeling that when we look back on our sufferings, even things like the Holocaust, that they will be a momentary flinch as we face an eternity of love. You don't know the light until you've seen the dark. And we're facing a great light. And we have to be able to choose the dark in order to to choose the light. If we if we could not choose anything but light, well, there would be no choice at all. I, I don't know if this will help, um, but um, you know maybe you can have him listen to this or have him call in. I, I I'm as you know always a bit scattered about these things, but I, I really do believe that 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 the amazing thing about our religion is that that God left His throne in heaven and joined us in our sufferings oh there you go okay let's see um um then thanks for you know listening to uh you know he mentions um um mass hysteria so i'm oh, oh you know and while i'm thinking of it just crossed my mind again one more time let me say thank you for that pledge drive we are all kind of astonished uh, and gra- grateful. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, uh, just can't say thank you uh, enough. Let's see here. All right. Now I've got a letter uh, in my Bible study today. We had a description about which scriptures read by Orthodox Jews in the synagogue. There was a number of differing opinions. I am having fine difficulty finding it on the web. I know that you can easily answer this. <laughs> oh, I suppose I could, but I'll probably go on and on about something. Well, uh, the, the, there are two things read in the synagogue. There's the Torah, which means the first five books of Moses, and those are read with much more, uh, and studied with much more intensity, uh, than, uh, other parts of scripture. But then they have something called the Haftorah. Uh, which which follows the Torah reading. It's sort of like uh, in 
Catholic uh, services, we read readings from the Old New Testament, and then we have the Gospel. And, you know, sometimes we parade about with the Gospel book and all that sort of thing, and sometimes that's a little more dramatic than I think it should be. But that's for mass hysteria. Uh, the uh, But they do it the other way around. They read Torah first. The, that's their... You know, they call it, actually, the word Megillah means a scroll. And the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, those are called the big Megillah. They 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 bring out, the yeah, it's very important. You have to have a minion, which means a certain number of people. Is it nine? I forget. I'd have to look it up. Um, and, and if you've got the minion, uh, you you can bring out the Torah and read from the Torah but you can't unless you got the minion. So that's how they do it. The Torah is read first, and then they would have readings uh, from something called the Haft Torah. So principally, it's Torah. So I hope that answers the question. All right. This is from, let's see, this is this is a three-parter. This is from uh, Alfred. Do you think it is just a coincidence that Jesus, Son of God the Father, was to be crucified along with Barabbas, Son of the Father? I find this too similar to be overlooked. Uh, yeah, um, I, I think there's meaning to it. Let me let me click away on something here. Barabbas is Aramaic. Bar is the same as uh, Ben in Hebrew. And Ben means son of. Uh, and Bar means son of. Um let me look it up because there's more to it here. Barabbas, actually, um, his name was Jesus Barabbas, Yeshua Baraba. He had ex- the son. He had the same first name as Jesus. It is very interesting that uh, um, he's Jesus Barabbas. That was what I was looking up. I thought it was. Uh, um, the, the, I thought it was Jesus, but Yeshua was one of the most common names. And Barabbas' name uh, um, uh, is is also a personal name uh, that appears uh, in the Gemara section of the Talmud. So that's not an uncommon name. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of scholars think the Barabbas story is just put in, but if it was put in, I think it was put in by the Father in heaven. Uh, and I think that, that um, there is a great symbolism there, that Jesus gave his life for a son of the Father. In other words, we're, he wants us all to be sons and daughters of his Father. So there's a symbolism there, but I, I, so I don't think it's a coincidence, but I do think it is um, intended by the Lord uh, in the scriptures, well, uh, the we don't really know what happened to uh, Barabbas, but uh, the 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 closest we can come to it, I think that there's some uh, indication that he went back to the life of a bandit and eventually was executed by the Romans. So I think that's kind of uh, interesting uh, that uh, Barabbas was. Uh, uh, was crucified uh, eventually. Oh, and don't go anywhere because, well, Drew is coming up and he says, um, so rarely. <laughs> <laughs> 